Section three of the Death of Lord Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by FNH. The Death of Lord Nelson by William Beatty. Section three. An hour and ten minutes, however, elapsed from the time of his lordship's being wounded before captain hardy's first subsequent interview with him the particulars of which are nearly as follow they shook hands affectionately and lord nelson said well hardy how goes the battle how goes the day with us very well my lord replied captain hardy we have got twelve or fourteen of the enemy's ships in our possession but five of their van have tacked and show an intention of bearing down upon the victory I have therefore called two or three of our fresh ships round us, and have no doubt of giving them a drubbing. I hope, said his lordship, none of our ships have struck Hardy. No, my lord, replied Captain Hardy, there is no fear of that. Lord Nelson then said, I am a dead man, Hardy. I am going fast. It will all be over with me soon. Come nearer to me. Pray let my dear Lady Hamilton have my hair and all other things belonging to me. Mr. Burke was about to withdraw at the commencement of this conversation, but his lordship, perceiving his intention, desired he would remain. Captain Hardy observed that he hoped Mr. Beatty could yet hold out some prospect of life. Oh, no, answered his lordship. It is impossible. My back is shot through. Beatty will tell you so. Captain Hardy then returned on deck, and at parting shook hands again with his revered friend and commander now requested the surgeon who had been previously absent a short time attending mr rivers to return to the wounded and give his assistance to such of them as he could be useful to for he said you can do nothing for me the surgeon assured him that the assistant surgeons were doing everything that could be effected for these unfortunate men but on his lordship's several times repeating his injunctions to this purpose, he left him surrounded by Dr. Scott, Mr. Burke, and two of his lordship's domestics. After the surgeon had been absent for a few minutes attending Lieutenants Peak and Reeves of the Marines, who were also wounded, he was called by Dr. Scott to his lordship, who said, Ah, Mr. Beatty, I have sent for you to say what I forgot to tell you before, that all power of motion and feeling below my breast are gone and you continued he very well know i can live but a short time the emphatic manner in which he pronounced these last words left no doubt in the surgeon's mind that he adverted to the case of a man who had some months before received a mortal injury of the spine on board the victory and had laboured under similar privations of sense and muscular motion the case had made a great impression on lord nelson he was anxious to know the cause of such symptoms, which was accordingly explained to him, and he now appeared to apply the situation and fate of this man to himself. The surgeon answered, My lord, you told me so before, but he now examined the extremities to ascertain the fact, when his lordship said, Ah, Beatty, I am too certain of it. Scott and Burke have tried it already. You know I am gone. The surgeon replied, My lord, unhappily for our country, nothing can be done for you. 
and having made this declaration, he was so much affected that he turned round and withdrew a few steps to conceal his emotions. His lordship said, I know it, I feel something rising in my breast. Putting his hand on his left side, which tells me I am gone. Drink was recommended liberally, and Dr. Scott and Mr. Burke fanned him with paper. He often exclaimed, God be praised, I have done my duty. And upon the surgeon's inquiring whether his pain was still great, he declared, It continued so very severe that he wished he was dead. Yet, he said in a lower voice, one would like to live a little longer too. And after a pause of a few minutes, he added in the same tone, What would become of poor Lady Hamilton if she knew my situation? The surgeon, finding it impossible to render his lordship any further assistance, left him to attend Lieutenant Bly, Messrs. Smith and Westfall midshipmen, and some seamen recently wounded. Captain Hardy now came to the cockpit to see his lordship a second time, which was after an interval of about fifty minutes from the conclusion of his first visit. Before he quitted the deck, he sent Lieutenant Hills to acquaint Admiral Collingwood with the lamentable circumstance of Lord Nelson's being wounded. Lord Nelson and Captain Hardy shook hands again, and while the captain retained his lordship's hand, he congratulated him, even in his arms of death, on his brilliant victory, which, he said, was complete, though he did not know how many of the enemy were captured, as it was impossible to perceive every ship distinctly. He was certain, however, of fourteen or fifteen having been surrendered. His lordship answered, That is well, but I bargained for twenty, and then emphatically exclaimed, Anchor, Hardy, anchor! To this the captain replied, I suppose, my lord, Admiral Collingwood will now take it upon himself the direction of affairs. Not while I live, I hope, Hardy, cried the dying chief, and at that moment endeavoured to ineffectually to raise himself from the bed. No, he added, do you anchor, Hardy? Captain Hardy then said, Shall we make the signal, sir? Yes, answered his lordship, for if I live, I'll anchor. The enigmatic manner in which he uttered these last orders to Captain Hardy, accompanied with his efforts to raise himself, evinced his determination never to resign the command while he retained the exercise of his transcendent faculties, and that he expected Captain Hardy still to carry into effect the suggestions of his exalted mind, a sense of his duty overcoming the pains of death. He then told Captain Hardy, he felt that in a few minutes he should be no more, adding in a low tone, Don't throw me overboard, Hardy. The captain answered, Oh, no, certainly not. You know what to do. And, continued he, Take care of my dear Lady Hamilton. Hardy, take care of poor Lady Hamilton. Kiss me, Hardy. The captain now knelt down and kissed his cheek when his lordship said, Now I am satisfied. Thank God I have done my duty. Captain Hardy stood for a minute or two in silent contemplation. He then knelt down again, and kissed his lordship's forehead. His lordship said, Who is that? The captain answered, It is Hardy. To which his lordship replied, God bless you, Hardy. 
After this affecting scene, Captain Hardy withdrew, and returned to the quarter-deck, having spent about eight minutes in his last interview with his dying friend. Lord Nelson now desired Mr. Chevalier, his steward, to turn him upon his right side, which, being affected, his lordship said, I wish I had not left the deck, for I shall soon be gone. He afterwards became very low. His breathing was oppressed, and his voice faint. He said to Dr. Scott, Doctor, I have not been a great sinner. And after a short pause, Remember, I leave Lady Hamilton and my daughter Horatia as a legacy to my country. And, he added, Never forget Horatia. His thirst was now increased, and he called for drink, drink, fan, fan, and rub, rub, addressing himself in the last case to Dr. Scott, who had been rubbing his lordship's breast with his hand, from which he found some relief. These words he spoke in a very rapid manner, which rendered his articulation difficult, but he every now and then, with evident increase of pain, made a greater effort with his vocal powers, and pronounced distinctly these last words. Thank God I have done my duty. And this great sentiment he continued to repeat, as long as he was able to give it utterance. His lordship became speechless in about fifteen minutes after Captain Hardy left him. Dr. Scott and Mr. Burke, who had all along sustained the bed under his shoulders, which raised him in a nearly semi-recumbent posture, the only one which was supportable to him, forbore to disturb him by speaking to him and when he had remained speechless for about five minutes, his lordship's steward went to the surgeon, who had been a short time occupied with the wounded in another part of the cockpit, and stated his apprehensions that his lordship was dying. The surgeon immediately repaired to him, and found him on the verge of dissolution. He knelt down by his side, and took up his hand, which was cold, and the pulse gone from the wrist. The surgeon's feeling his forehead, which was likewise cold, his lordship opened his eyes, looked up, and shut them again. The surgeon left him, and returned to the wounded who required his assistance, but was not absent five minutes before the steward announced to him that he believed his lordship had expired. The surgeon returned, and found that the report was but too well founded. His lordship had breathed his last at thirty minutes past four o'clock, at which period Dr. Scott was in the act of rubbing his lordship's breast and Mr. Burke, supporting the bed under his shoulders, died this matchless hero, after performing, in a short but brilliant and well-filled life, a series of naval exploits unexampled in any age of the world. None of the sons of fame ever possessed even greater zeal to promote the honour and interest of the king and country. None ever served them with more devotedness and glory, or with a more successful and important results. His character will forever cast a lustre over the annals of this nation, to whose enemies his very name was a terror. In the battle off Cape St. Vincent, though then in a subordinate station of a captain, his unprecedented personal prowess will long be recorded with admiration among his profession. The shores of Abuka and Copenhagen subsequently witnessed those stupendous achievements which struck the whole civilized world with astonishment. Still, these were only preludes to the Battle of Trafalgar, in which he shone with a majesty of dignity, as far surpassing even his own former renown 
as that renown had already exceeded everything else to be found in the pages of naval history the transcendently brightest star in a galaxy of heroes his splendid example will operate as an everlasting impulse to the enterprising genius of the british navy from the time of his lordship's being wounded till his death a period of about two hours and forty-five minutes elapsed but a knowledge of his decisive victory which he had gained he acquired of captain hardy within the first hour and a quarter of this period a partial cannonade however was still maintained in consequence of the enemy's running ships passing the british at different points and the last distant guns which were fired at their van ships that were making off were heard a minute or two before his lordship expired a steady and continued fire was kept up by the victory's starboard guns on the redoubtable for about fifteen minutes after lord nelson was wounded in which short period captain adair and about eighteen seamen and marines were killed and lieutenant bligh mr palmer midshipman and twenty seamen and marines wounded by the enemy's musketry alone the redoubtable had been on fire twice in her four chains and on her forecastle she had likewise succeeded in throwing a few hand grenades into the victory which had set fire to some ropes and canvas on the booms the cry of fire was now circulated throughout the ship and even reached the cockpit without producing the degree of sensation which might be expected on such an awful occasion the crew soon extinguished the fire on the booms and then immediately turned their attention to that on board the enemy which they likewise put out by throwing buckets of water from the gangway into the enemy's chains and forecastle thus furnishing another admirable instance of deliberate intrepidity at thirty minutes past one o'clock the redoubtable's musketry having ceased and her colours being struck the victory men endeavoured to get on board her but this was found impracticable for though the two ships were in contact yet the top sides or upper works of both fell in so much on their upper decks that there was a great space perhaps fourteen feet or more between their gangways and the enemy's ports being down she could not be boarded from the victory's lower or middle deck several seamen volunteered their services to lieutenant quilliam to jump overboard swim under the redoubtable's bows and endeavour to get up there but captain hardy refused to permit this the prize however and the victory fell off from each other and their separation was believed to be the effect of the concussion produced by the victory's fire assisted by the helm of the latter being put to starboard mrs ogilvie and collingwood midshipmen of the victory were sent in a small boat to take charge of the prize which they effected after this the ships of the enemy's van that had shown a disposition to attack the victory passed to windward and fired their broadsides not only into her and the temeraire but also into the french and spanish captured ships indiscriminately and they were seen to back or shiver their topsails for the purpose of doing this with more precision the two midshipmen of the victory had just boarded the redoubtable and got their men out of the boat when a shot from the enemy's van ships that were making off cut the boat adrift about ten men after taking possession of her a midshipman came to her from the temeraire and had hardly ascended the poop when a shot from one of those ships took off his leg the french officers seeing the firing continued on the prize by their own countrymen entreated the english midshipmen to quit the deck and accompany them below 
the unfortunate midshipman of the temeraire was carried to the french surgeon who was ordered to give his immediate attendance to him in preference to his own wounded his leg was amputated but he died the same night the redoubtable suffered so much from shot received between wind and water that she sunk while in tow of the swift shore on the following evening when the gale came on and out of a crew originally consisting of more than eight hundred men only about a hundred and thirty were saved but she had lost above three hundred in the battle it is by no means certain though highly probable that lord nelson was particularly aimed at by the enemy there were only two frenchmen left alive in the mizzen-top of the redoubtable at the time of his lordship's being wounded and by the hands of one of these he fell these men continued firing at captains hardy and adair lieutenant rotley of the marines and some of the midshipmen on the victory's poop for some time afterwards at length one of them was killed by a musket-ball and on the others then attempting to make his escape from the top down the rigging mr pollard midshipman fired his musket at him and shot him in the back when he fell dead from the shrouds on the redoubtable's poop the writer of this will not attempt to depict a heart-rending sorrow and melancholy gloom which pervaded the breast and the countenance of every individual on board the victory when his lordship's death became generally known the anguish felt by all for such a loss rendered doubly heavy to them is more easy to be conceived than described by his lamented fall they were at once deprived of their adored commander and their friend and patron the battle was fought in soundings about sixteen miles to the westward of cape trafalgar and if fortunately there had been more wind in the beginning of the action it is very probable that lord nelson would still have been saved to his country and that every ship of the line composing the combined fleets would have been either captured or destroyed for had the victory been going fast through the water she must have dismasted the redoubtable and would of course have passed on to attack another ship consequently his lordship would not so long have been exposed to the enemy's musketry from the same circumstances there being little wind several of the enemy's ships made off before the rear and bad sailing ships of the british line could come up to secure them the victory had no musketry in her tops as his lordship had a strong aversion to small arms being placed there from the danger of their setting fire to the sails which was exemplified by the destruction of the french ship the achille in this battle it is a species of warfare by which individuals may suffer and now and then a commander be picked off but it never can decide the fate of a general engagement and a circumstance in many respects similar to that of the victories running on board of the redoubtable may not occur again in the course of centuries the loss sustained by the victory amounted to fifty-five killed and a hundred and two wounded and it is highly honourable to the discipline and established regulations of the ship that not one casualty from accident occurred on board during the engagement on the day after the battle as soon as circumstances permitted the surgeon to devote a portion of his attention to the care of lord nelson's honoured remains measures were adopted to preserve them as effectually as the means on board the victory allowed on the surgeon's examining the nature of the wound and the course of the ball 
a quantity of blood was evacuated from the left side of the breast. None had escaped before. The ball was traced by a probe to the spine, but its lodgment could not at that time be discovered. There was no lead on board to make a coffin. A cask called a leaguer, which is of the largest size on shipboard, was therefore chosen for the reception of the body, which, after the hair had been cut off, was stripped of the clothes, except the thin shirt, and he was put into it, and the cask was then filled with brandy. End of section 3 Recording by FNH Visit www.bookranger.co.uk